Once upon a time, God's people gathered for worship and fill in the blank. I suspect that if we took a poll, we'd probably have as many answers or responses to that as we have people here. And we'd add into that the people who were in the earlier service and we'd have that many more responses. There is something about worship that causes us to see things differently. It has to, maybe it has to do with what we like or don't like, our experiences, uh, what we've been taught. All kinds of things come into play when we start talking about worship. But one thing we've experienced over the last 10, 20, 30 years is that worship has a tendency to divide us rather than to unite us. We even have a phrase that's bantered around the church called, we talk about worship wars. And that seems like an oxymoron to me. But we can become so, I think the reason why we, we have these struggles is because we're so intense about it. We care so much about it. And because we come at it from all these different perspectives. And there's a lot of confusion, misunderstanding, disagreement, but we're not alone. We are not the first generation or hundred years of people to misunderstand or be confused or have differences of opinion, of opinion about worship. You go all the way back to the Garden of Eden and there is misunderstanding about worship. Abraham struggles to understand worship. Moses and Aaron struggle to get worship right. David wrestles with worship. Solomon wrestles with worship. And all through the scriptures, the people of Israel wrestle with worship. And when we come to Psalm 50, this is a passage in which God says, I have a word for you about worship. And he says, my people, listen up. Now this passage, this psalm, is set in a courtroom scene. That's intriguing to me because I've always had this interest in courtroom dramas. You know, I own a lot of seasons of Perry Mason television show. I watch a lot of Law and Order. I like that show. So I'm kind of a legal expert about a number of these things. And I, I, rec- I understand how the legal system works. My family thinks I'm nuts about a lot of things, but this one in particular, that I, I've always wanted to sit on a jury. Most people are trying to get out of it. I keep trying to get in and they won't let me. And I don't exactly know the reason for that, but maybe you have some ideas. But a few years ago, I was called for grand jury duty. And so, you know, I go, we're sitting in this big room, we're waiting and waiting and waiting. And... Then they get to the point where people are trying, giving their reasons for why they shouldn't serve and they are weeding out people. And they get down to all of that done and they said, we still have too many people here. So we're going to draw some names out of a hat and those of you who get drawn out, you win. You have done your service, but you can go home. And I've, I've won a few drawings like that, but I was really hoping to lose this day. And I couldn't believe it when they called my name. I wanted to argue with the judge. I'll stay. Let somebody else go. But... And I haven't been called since. I don't know if I had to do with that argument with the judge or not. But, but you know, I, I, I have a feeling that if you're sitting at the defense table, 
And your future is in the hands of a jury or a judge or a prosecutor. It's probably not quite as interesting as I imagine sitting on a jury might be. It's serious. You recognize that that this is real life. This is serious stuff. And God says to Israel, this is serious. He says to them, I am not just the prosecutor, and I'm not just the witness. I'm not just the jury. I'm the judge too. And we think, well, that doesn't seem fair. We try to separate those responsibilities. But God says to them, I can do that because I created all of this to begin with. And God is the only perfect, holy, righteous judge. When we go to courtrooms, when, we, when people sit in a courtroom, a judge does the very best they can to determine who's telling the truth and who's lying and what's right and what's wrong. And, but sometimes people who are guilty get away with it. And some people who are innocent end up in prison because we're human. But in the court of heaven, no mistakes. God knows our hearts. He knows the minds of his people. And he says to Israel, I'm going to gather all of creation. They're going to be my, the witnesses to this whole event. And I am prosecutor, witness, judge, jury, and I've got some things to say to you about worship. And the primary accusation against them is that they are confused about the purpose of worship. Why we do this? He says, you, you bring your sacrifices and you come and, and you, you sacrifice the animals, the bulls, the goats, and do all this stuff. And that's fine. The problem is not the sacrificial system. The problem is not gathering for worship. That's not the problem. That's something God commanded and established. This is, that, that's something from the mind of God. It wasn't a human being that said, you know what? We ought to start doing this thing. No, God set that up. And they, ought, and they are commended for practicing what, they, what they're supposed to do. The problem is they think that what they're doing is to meet a need in God. Instead of gathering, sacrificing, worshiping so that God can meet a need in them. And I suspect sometimes maybe we wrestle with the same difficulty. You know, he says to them, beginning in verse 7, My people, listen as I speak. Here are my charges against you. I don't have a complaint about your sacrifices or the burnt offerings you constantly offer, but I don't need the bulls from your barns or the goats from your pens. All the animals of the forest are mine. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird on the mountains. All the animals in the field are mine. And if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. The world is mine. Everything in it. I can eat what I want. Do I eat the meat of bulls? Do I drink the blood of goats? No. Now, I know why Israel wrestles with that because all the other nations around them believe that when they come to sacrifice to their gods, they are meeting a need in that God. They are bringing something to the God that the God needs and wants. And they figured out that if you meet the needs of the gods, they are much more apt to give you what you want. 
And so we sacrifice, we come and do what we're supposed to do as a means of appeasing the gods, as a means of getting from the gods what we desperately want to get, meeting a need in them. And God says to Israel, that is not who I am. I don't have any needs. We're not doing this so that you can convince me to do good things for you. I love doing good things for you. I created you. I, I chose you. I set all this up because you are special to me. You don't, have to, you don't have to appease me. You don't have to manipulate me. I love doing good things for you. It's not about fulfilling some kind of duty to God. It's about coming and being nurtured in our relationship with God. And I suspect that in one way or another, we probably wrestle with that. There is something in the back of our minds that makes worship feel like an obligation. And obligations aren't necessarily always bad. As he says, later part of that passage, just bring the vows and fulfill the vows that you've made to me. Do what you have said you're going to do. But when our mindset is, well, I guess I have to do this because I'm supposed to. Then our attitude about it is totally wrong. And that's when we start getting into this idea of fighting about worship. Because the minute we think we're doing something out of obligation, we start thinking, look at me, look how good I am, look at how I'm fulfilling this obligation and this duty, so I ought to be the center of attention. And everything that's done ought to be shaped to my liking. And if it's not, people are going to hear about it. That doesn't mean that we don't care about our preferences or that we don't pay attention to the different ways in which each of us connects with God, hears God, sees God. That is vitally important. That's why we do different styles of worship, even at this church. Because we don't all hear God and connect to God in the same way. But underlying all of that is not a sense of, look at how awesome we are fulfilling this duty. But rather a mindset that says, I want to come to worship because I want God to do something in my life. I want God to work in me and to transform me and to change me. Some of you know I grew up in a minister's home and so we were in church all the time. I suspect that there were a lot of weeks when we were at the church for some gathering, three, four, even more sometimes a week. And so when I got to college and moved away from home and lived in the dorm, part of my rebellion was to say, I'm not going to church anymore. I think I've got a reservoir stacked up. I'm good for a while. And I've come to realize that I think underlying that decision, besides just sort of a, you know, teenage rebellion that you most of us go through in some form was the sense that all doing all this was just duty and obligation. I had no thought in my mind that I would go to worship because God wanted to work in my life. God wanted to, to tell me how much he loved me and how much he desires me, how much he likes me, and all the ways in which God wants to work in me. 
And it's taken me a while to begin to figure that out. And it totally changes the dynamic of worship and why we gather and what we're here to do. And what I find interesting is that when we are confused about worship and God in that way, what ends up happening is not only do we have this wrestle with this feeling of obligation and feeling like you know we're entitled and everything ought to be about us, but when we leave this place, we tend to leave the spirit of worship at the door. And we tend to create this separation in our lives of this is who I am when I gather for worship and I sing the songs and I pray the prayers and do the readings and, and you know, I really engage God here. And when I walk out the door, then I just go live my life. And God says to Israel, this is becoming a problem for you. When you look at the beginning of verse 16, he says... God says to the wicked, it is interesting he calls them the wicked, even though he's still talking about Israel. You, you, why do you bother reciting my decrees and pretending to obey my covenant? Because obeying the covenant means you live it. You don't just come for an hour or so and think about it. You refuse my discipline. You treat my words like trash. When you see thieves, you approve of them. You spend time with adulterers. Your mouth is filled with wickedness. Your tongue's full of lies. You sit around and slander your brother, your own mother's son. Now, we may not do those exact things, but at the heart of that behavior is I can go out and basically live as I think is appropriate, and worship doesn't seem to have a whole lot to do with it. It doesn't seem to make any difference. And it's not that how we treat people then makes us right with God. It's just that if we are right with God, it makes a difference in how we treat people. Which is what Jesus is saying in Matthew 25 that Pastor John was talking about a few weeks ago when he said, you know, you are, you're going to be welcomed by my Father because you gave water to the thirsty and, and food to the hungry and you clothed the naked and you visited the sick and you went to the prisons and people said, well, when did we do that? You know, when did you do that to you? And he said, when you did it to them. And the point isn't, you do this to them and then that makes you right with God. But it's that, those are the kinds of things that people who are right with God, that's what we do. That's how you live. That's how you think about people and treat people. That's why John says in his epistle, if we say you love God but you hate other people, then I have to wonder if you really love God. And if we say, and paraphrasing that, when, when I, I go to worship and I engage all of myself in worship... But I walk out and I treat people terribly. Then we have to wonder, are we really engaging with God in worship? Is it making a difference? Because the point that God has for why we gather for worship, again, it's not because we, we have something to give him that he needs. It's rather that he gives us his spirit and he's changing us and he's working in us. And we're different people when we're here and when we're out there. Mark Laberton tells a story about um, being in a worship gathering one time. It sounded like it was more of a contemporary gathering and people were standing around and there was a guy in the front who was super engaged in the worship. His eyes were closed, his hands were raised and, and he was you know, singing with gusto and dancing around and, and, and again, nothing wrong with that. In fact, 
probably wouldn't hurt us if we were a little more demonstrative in our worship. That'd be okay. But, but he was very demonstrative in his worship, and he was really engaged in it. Laverton said the interesting thing was that as he was doing that, all throughout the worship time, he kept stepping on the toes of the people around him. And he said not just once or twice, but over and over and over again. And he said as he was, in his words, trouncing in the spirit, he, he wasn't paying any attention to those people. There was no apology, no acknowledgement, nothing about it. And he said, I wanted to ask him afterwards, did you realize that you were doing that? He said, I assume, assume he probably said, no, I didn't even pay attention. I was so absorbed in worship. I wasn't paying any attention to the people around me. And he said, that's it. That's the problem. If we are so absorbed in worship that it causes us to not pay attention to other people. And I don't, don't mean, you know, in the worship gathering, though that's important too. But as we go out, then... We have to maybe examine what's going on in our worship. What fascinates me is the most serious accusation that God makes against Israel is he says, you're doing all this stuff, you're, you're, you're missing the point, you're, you're living separate lives, and you think, I don't care. Verse 21, he says, because I have remained silent up to this point, because I haven't come after you, you think it doesn't matter to me. It does. And in fact, God says that if this behavior doesn't change, the consequences are serious. His exact words in verse 22 is, Repent, all of you who forget me, or I will tear you apart, and no one will help you. That's one of those passages we think, Ooh, boy, that, that's a little harsh. I wish that, kind of, wish that wasn't there. There's got to be a nicer way for God to say that. Because it makes God seem vengeful. But if that's our mindset, I think we're missing the point. He's not saying this because we've somehow offended him. Like... We might do as parents sometimes, you know, we're out in the store and our children are acting up and and we punish them because we're embarrassed. But rather, this is like a parent who's watching their child play in the highway and they run out and grab them and and they, they lay down the law to them and maybe do more to them because they're trying to impress upon them the seriousness, the danger of playing in the highway. And we would say, I think, the most loving parent is not the one that just says, well, hey, you know, I don't want to upset them, so I'll just let them play where they want to. As opposed to the parent who says, no, I'm going to make sure they understand that is dangerous because I care about them. See, really underlying this whole courtroom scene is not God as the judge sitting up and pointing his finger at Israel and at us in condemnation. It is a courtroom filled with grace. Because God is trying to help them and us understand that if we don't change the way we view worship and what we do about worship, it's going to lead to destruction for us. It is pulling us away from God who is the source of everything deep inside we've always wanted. Love and joy and grace and peace. Those deep yearnings in our souls. God is the source of all of that. And sometimes the way we approach worship, it pulls us away from God instead of to God. 
And so what do we do about it? He really has one piece of advice to them and to us. He says, don't forget. He says, don't forget. Remember. When we talk about, talk about forgetting, it's not, oh, I forgot to stop by the store and pick up milk on my way home. It's not, oh, I forgot that meeting because I was so engrossed in this. It is not paying attention to God. It is ignoring the truth about God. It's refusing to put things in front of us so that we see and remember who God is. It's one of the reasons why Scripture is so important to our lives. Because every time we read the Scriptures in one way or another, it is reminding us about who God is and what God does and how God feels about us and all of the promises of God for us. And often... When we neglect scripture, we have a tendency to forget. And the word that God brings to Israel over and over and over and over again is remember. Some people have said it is the key word of the whole Old Testament. Remember. He says, I'm your God. And remember, I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. Have you ever noticed how often God references that? Over and over again, he keeps telling them, I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. So yeah, we get it. Yes, but you forget. And when you forget who I am and what I've done, you have a tendency to get off track. And when you get off track, you separate yourself from the source of life and joy and peace and everything good that we all are dreaming to have. And the natural result of remembering is gratitude. It's thankfulness. And he says to them, if you want to bring a sacrifice, in verse 14, make thankfulness your sacrifice to God. Verse 23, giving thanks is a sacrifice that truly honors me. I think the most profound thing we can do in worship is to give thanks to God. There are lots of elements to worship. And there are a lot of good things that we do in worship. But ultimately, if we come to worship with a mindset, I'm going to look for every way possible to give thanks to God. I think that will shape our hearts and put us, our minds and our attitude in a place that God can do something with us. If the church was committed to worship as thanksgiving, we would have no idea what anyone was talking about when they said worship wars because all of our attention would be on God and everything he's doing and everything he's done it is in that spirit of thanksgiving that we begin to see the results of worship which is becoming more and more like God I mean isn't that the desire isn't that, the, isn't that what holiness is to become like God And one of the most profound means to do that is to worship God with hearts that are open to Him, focused on Him, giving thanks to Him, remembering. And in that spirit, God can change us and work in us. It's one of the most profound things that struck me when I read Henry Nouwen's book, The Return of the Prodigal Son. He, He says in this book that 
you know, we tend to think that the focus of the parable that we read a little bit ago is the younger son. And, and there's certainly a lot to that story, and it's a glorious story. Other people think, no, it's the elder son because he's talking to the Pharisees when he uses, when he tells them the story. But now one thinks, and I tend to agree with him, that really the focus of the story is the father. Like Tim Keller titled his recent book, The Prodigal God. And the father is the center of the story. Because when you read the story, you find that it's pretty easy to identify with the, the elder, the younger son. And we all love the sense of being welcomed home. And we can identify relatively easily with the elder son and the, his struggle with pride and legalism and, and arrogance and, and, and being upset about what his father's doing for this no good brother. But the real test, the real jump is to ask ourselves, is there anything in us that makes us look like the father? Because if we all we, if the only place we see ourselves is, son, is sons and daughters, then we can sort of get away with our immature, childish behavior. But it's something else entirely to say, I, like God, am going to, I'm going to ask him to make me more like a parent than a child. It's one thing to, to be, it's wonderful to be welcomed home, but it's something else entirely to be the one welcoming home. It's one thing to receive forgiveness. It's something else entirely to be the one who offers forgiveness. And I think as we grow in worship and as God begins to work in our lives, the goal, the purpose, is that we become more like the Father. One of the translations for verse 21 that says, you don't think I care about you, in the New International Version, it says, you thought I was exactly like you. And he goes through this litany of things that they're doing wrong, and he says, you think the reason I was silent is because you thought I was like you, and, and that I agreed with you. And I wonder if, if God's underlying question is not so much, am I like you? But really, are you like me? And that is the goal and the purpose of worship. That he would so fill us, that we would come with such a spirit of openness and so focused on God, that we would actually begin looking like the Father. And having an attitude toward people like the Father does. And treating other people like the Father does. And thinking about life and the world as the Father does. And I'm convinced that mindset and that transformation starts in worship. Once upon a time, God's people gathered for worship. And they were so focused on God and so open to God because they wanted to be 
filled with the Spirit of God. That they actually began to look like God. And God was pleased. So pleased. And the kingdom of God on earth began to look a little bit more like the kingdom of God in heaven. Amen.